Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What is it? It's a boy. A boy? Tell me about it. He's beautiful. Tiberius, you kidding me? No, that's the worst. Let's name him after your dad. Let's, let's call him Jim. Hello, all you lovely people listening to Positively Trek right now. I welcome you here to the show. I'm Bruce Gibson, and thank you for joining us here on... NPR Positively Trek. <laughs> no, actually, we're not NPR. We're just Positively Trek. We are a podcast. And, of course, with me, as he always is, is Dan Gunther. Dan, do you have your Gorn on today? I have my Gorn on today, yes. Um, <laughs> I Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to answer that, but... I will yes and you on that one. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, you got your Gorn on today. That means you're like ready to take on the world and fight and keep invaders from entering your space. Absolutely. 100%. That was what I thought when I got up this morning is I really have to keep invaders from my space. Yep. <laughs> yep. And there's a salesperson at your door knocking. You open it and you go. <laughs> Actually, it's funny. There are there was somebody here installing uh, fiber optic for my new internet, which I hope to get in the next couple of weeks. So uh, there was an invader here, but he was welcomed. He he was doing important work. <laughs> oh, wow. I hope that internet works so well once that's all installed. I really hope so. It's been pushed back month by month by month. So uh, I just, I bought it installed yesterday. Wow. Why do they keep pushing it back? Well, in uh, in December it was for excessive snow, and and they rescheduled it for January, oh. which was ridiculous because there was still snow then. <laughs> and then uh, March and April it was too wet, and May it was still too wet, I think. So it was scheduled for June first to be installed, but the company that's installing the fiber optic stuff isn't done yet i guess they've run into unexpected wiring problems which means they haven't gotten around to finishing it is best mm. i can tell uh so now it's next week so i really hope that's the last delay because this is getting really tiresome <laughs> yeah i bet it is but the good thing is, is you can sit back and read a book if your internet's not working well absolutely yep and i can picture the images in my own mind and use my own imagination to craft those strange new worlds as we read. I'm glad you said that because that's part of the topic that we want to talk about when we talk about this book, Star Trek Final Frontier by Diane Carey. And this came out in January of 1988. 
And so this is an early novel. And of course, since then, we've had so much more Star Trek on screen and on the page. And so the take of us reading this now versus then is going to be a little different. So we're going to touch on that later here when we get deep into the book. But in the meantime, before we get into any spoilers and such, Dan, what are some of your initial thoughts about Final Frontier? Well, this is one that I've been curious about for a long time. This is actually my first time ever reading it. It's one that's been on my bookshelf for quite a while. And it's one of the the big ones, right? It's one of the big early novels that a lot of people talk about. And uh, I was, yeah, curious to get into it and, and see what it was like. And for the most part, I enjoyed it. I thought it was an interesting story, well told. I do have some issues with some of the things in it and and some of how uh, Diane Carey has chosen to tell the story. As for the specifics of that, we'll, of course, get into that later in our spoil fil- spoiler-filled discussion. But uh, yeah, suffice it to say, it was enjoyable with a few small issues. Mm, yes, I'm curious to know what you have to say about that later. So I did read this book, not when it came out in 88, because I wasn't reading Star Trek novels at that time. I was too busy studying in a university. But I was I read this probably in either 90 or 91. It was early on in my reading. So, I mean, I wasn't so deep into the Star Trek lore at that point. So this time reading it was a very different experience. And just for those who aren't familiar with this novel, it does involve Robert April, Captain April, and also James T. Kirk's dad, George Kirk. So this is happening in the pre-TOS, pre-Strange New Worlds era, (laughs) and when the Enterprise is first, you know, being launched. But it's not so much the enterprise yet, but we'll get into that later. But we have the synopsis on the back cover and Dan, do you want to read that since you love doing those? Sure. This is the story of a hero and a moment forever lost to history. It is a tale of Starfleet's early days of a time before the Star Trek. We know the story of a secret mission gone horribly wrong and an instant in time when the galaxy stood poised on the brink of one final destructive war. It is the story of a ship since passed on into legend and a man we know only as the father of Starfleet's greatest captain. His name is Kirk, Commander George Samuel Kirk. He is a warrior born and bred to battle, Now destiny has placed the fate of a hundred innocent worlds on his shoulders and put the power of the greatest weapon the galaxy has ever seen in his hands. In his hands. Yeah, like a big hand in space. (laughs) So, yes. So, Dan, you'd never read this before. So, would you recommend people reading it? I, yeah, I would recommend people pick this one up. It's definitely a, a snapshot of Star Trek history at the time. And there's some things that have since, you know, the, the canon world of Star Trek has since moved on and overwritten some things here and made them kind of obsolete. But at the same time, it's, uh, that doesn't change the quality of the story. I think it's a fun, interesting adventure and a neat little peek into early Starfleet history, or at least early uh, compared to Captain Kirk and his five-year mission. 
Yeah, and it really does not work now that Star Trek Enterprise is out. It doesn't work with that series at all. Yeah, really. there's there's definitely a few things there, which again, not the fault of the book. That's and no. you know, canon Star Trek is free to do its thing. But uh yeah, the books are always of the moment, right? Exactly. And I do like this book. I like the take on it. If you don't if you look at it for what it is and it's just a prequel to TOS and not considering any other series, even TNG or Enterprise or anything else out there, just look at this for what it is, and that's a version of early missions of the Enterprise before TOS and before all these other series came out. So I, I, I did enjoy the book, which, again, we'll get into more depth here. But now, what about recommended viewing? What should you watch maybe before you read this book? This is a little bit of a difficult one because it doesn't tie in directly to a lot of Star Trek on television with one big exception, which would be uh, the first season TOS episode, The City on the Edge of Forever, which ties into the framing story. We see Kirk, Bones, and Spock in this kind of framing story that takes place immediately after the events of that episode. So, you know, if you're not caught up on that episode if you haven't watched it in a while you know maybe refresh your memory watching that one Uh, i would also say let's throw in the animated series episode the counterclock incident for one depiction of robert april and what the heck the first episode of the new series strange new worlds for another depiction of robert april just to kind of see how that jives with what we get in this book I'm going to recommend Balance of Terror, a TOS episode. That's a good one too. Yeah. Now that one, I would recommend that maybe watching it, if you're not that familiar with Star Trek, maybe watching that before you read this book, but it's definitely a good watch maybe to read even after reading this book. So Mm -hmm. to me, it can go either way. I think that episode could play as a sequel to this book. I would also recommend the original pilot, The Cage. It doesn't really have any direct effect in this book, but it's one of those early missions that would have happened shortly after this. It would give you a bit of sense of this time period, and Pike is mentioned briefly in this. So, I mean, that's that's like a light recommendation, but definitely Balance of Terror would be on my list. That's a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Tying into the events of this, that would make a good sequel companion to this book for sure. Yeah, another one out there that I'll put kind of loosely would be Star Trek 09, the movie, Mm, just mm -hmm. because we do see Kirk's parents and it's a different take on that whole backstory of Kirk and his parents. But, you know, it visually you can see George Kirk in that movie and then visualize him in this book. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into this book. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back. It's that time of the episode again, where we give a special shout out to our Patreon supporters, especially those at our Constitution class starship level and higher. So a special thank you to Carl Morris, Joyce Marin, Justin Ozer, Jim Stoffel, Jesse Earl, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, 
Paul D. Kinnear, and John Blaber. We really do appreciate all of your support of the Positively Trek podcast. If you are interested in making a monthly donation to help keep the show coming to you each week, please visit us at patreon.com slash positivelytrek. If you join at any level, you get access to our Patreon-only feed, where you get early access to episodes and ad-free versions of episodes as well. There are also other great perks. Again, visit us at patreon.com slash positivelytrek to learn more. Thanks again. And now, back to the show. See, we're back. I promised you we would be back. So here we are. We're going to talk about this book. So spoiler alert, we're going to just pretend that you've read this book too. And if you haven't read the book, we'll just assume that you just don't care to be spoiled because you just want to know what's in the book. And maybe you'll read it someday, or maybe you won't, but at least you know what happens in the book because you heard me and Dan talking about it. So, Absolutely. <laughs> so let's talk on something like the elephant in the room, I guess you could say, if you open this book, is the dating system in here. Because there are letters written by George Kirk to his sons, George Jr. and Jimmy. <laughs> it's on page five of the first chapter. And, uh, or actually it's in the prologue on page five and it's the letter stated May 10th of 2183. Now that date 2183 doesn't work in the current dating system that we've seen in Star Trek since then. Really, this should be somewhere in what 2240s, somewhere in that time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so at this time, when this novel was written, the one piece of dating info that we got from Star Trek was at the very start of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, it says, in the 23rd century. That's the only piece of information we get. And it hadn't been established when the original series took place or anything like that. Was this the very beginning of the 23rd century? Was it later? Now it's since been retconned that the original series, which aired from 1966 to 1969 took place in 2266 to 2269. So they kind of made those line up and then, Everything else kind of populated it out after, and that was mostly because of the year given by Data in the TNG episode, The Neutral Zone. He pinpointed the year that that episode takes place in, and they kind of retroactively adjusted everything to fit there. That hadn't come out yet at this time. And although it came out right around the same time, so it's, it's kind of funny. Like, the author would have just missed that, basically. Uh, so it's kind of funny timing there, but yeah, that was, that was what they were going on. And, and the author just kind of went with this year. I'm not sure if other books had also kind of gone with something similar, if she got that from somewhere else or what, but yeah, basically Kirk's youth and early career was in the late part of the 22nd century and the the movies took place in the very early part of the 23rd century was kind of the interpretation here. Yeah. So it's from my understanding, because I remember this years ago reading about this stuff. There was the FASA role playing mm -hmm. game. Right. Yeah. And I think the dating system that 
Diane Carey used came from that game or was closely related to that game. And I think this dating system may also been used in one or two other novels too. But in the early days of Star Trek, fandom and FASA started leaning in this direction. And I remember hearing at the time, one reason was because when you watch the original series, for example, like Space Seed or something, they're saying like 200 years. So mm-hmm. it gives you the impression that the original series takes place 200 years from the late 20th century. But to your point, then Wrath of Khan says 23rd century. So I would hear that there was estimated dates of late 2100s or the 22nd century would be the five-year mission. And then the movie era moves into the 23rd century in the early 2200s. This doesn't work quite like that because I think the dating of this early mission of the Enterprise would put TOS into the 23rd century, the early 23rd century. So I think there's a lot of dates that were kind of loose in that time of late 22nd and early 23rd century. But to your point, like, you know, like the Star Trek chronology has things taking place more in the 2260s for TOS and, and, and onward. Yeah, I think in this novel, we get a year for Kirk's graduation from the Academy or something like that as well. And just for the heck of it, I was like, okay, given that the uh, five-year mission takes place canonically now in 2266, how old would Kirk have been during the five-year mission, assuming he was about 21 years old when he graduated the Academy? And it was like something in, in the 90s. He would would, would have been 90-something. <laughs> So like, okay, well that doesn't quite work unless, you know, he looks really good for 90, but (laughs) yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of fun because when you read an older book like this and you go online, if you want to start researching some of this stuff, it's, it's interesting to find out where Star Trek was at that time. So it's, it's kind of a timepiece. Absolutely. Like I said, yeah. Like a snapshot of the era of Star Trek. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I like it. And it doesn't take away from the story at all if you just accept that, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I will admit, I'm sorry, but I remember like years and years ago, I tried to make it work where I thought, well, maybe there's two dating systems on Earth at the time. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, I can't make it work. It doesn't, it's, it's a stretch. You know? See, what we could do is imagine that we're living in the far future that like Star Trek's never been to like the 32nd century. Oh, wait, never mind. Uh, Discovery's there now. But like, if this were a piece of fiction, or historical fiction set in the Star Trek universe written hundreds of years later where they just got it wrong. They just don't have the dates quite right or something. Right. You know? Yeah. I actually know a couple authors who have mentioned, they think of Star Trek novels that way, that they are fictional works set in the Star Trek universe that are about famous people, but they're just like, the show is the real thing that happened, but people in the 23rd century really like Kirk. He's a hero. So they write novels about him and that's what the novels are. I kind of like that. That's so funny. Cause I never heard of that, but I've thought that way about star Wars novels since it's oh, a long yeah. time ago. And I think, well, maybe these are actually writings from people from that universe from years ago. And, and it's such long in the past that there's misinformation. That's why you have legends you know, that doesn't sync up with the current canon and stuff. That's so funny. 
Yeah, I'll just I'll just imagine that Burnham found all these books in the 32nd century about Kirk and Picard <laughs> and Cisco and Janeway and on and on. So yeah, that'd be fun. And Burnham's like, wow, they really got the years wrong on this one. I mean, I was alive at that time, and that is not right. <laughs> <laughs> and look at this book. Here's a book about me. And Burnham's like, wait. I I didn't see my brother at that time, and that's not right. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. But now there's a mission going on here where we have Captain Robert April, who captures the security officers of George Kirk and Drake Reed. They are in the space station as security officers, and he captures them by like taking a cloth with some chemical in it to make them pass out and bring them onto their ship to go on this mission, which to me is kind of strange. If anything, I thought that was the strangest part of the book. Yeah. That was something that like, Oh, okay. They're getting kidnapped. There's going to be some daring thing where they have to escape and blah, blah. Wait, they're on a starship and it's, it's Robert April. Who's kidnapped them to bring them on. Okay. Oh, that's not what I was expecting at all. Uh, so yeah, that was definitely a really strange way to get them to go on the mission. But again, it's all clandestine and undercover and, and secret. So he's wanting to keep them, uh, keep this whole thing a secret. I don't know. Kidnapping Starfleet officers feels like it wouldn't be a secret thing. <laughs> I feel like that would get a lot of publicity and attention that you wouldn't want, but. What do I know? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I reread that scene right before the show because it was bothering me. I was like, wait, did I did I read that right? I mean, I know they kidnapped him, but why? And he just says it's because they were in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's like much faster to just do it that way than try to explain why they need to come pack your bags, whatever, just kidnap them. <laughs> yeah. But... Anyway, they were in a hurry because they're on this rescue mission to save a disabled colony ship that's in an ion storm. Now, they're on a ship of of April's. I almost said Pike, by the way. They're on a ship of April's, but it's not the starship that is later named Enterprise. They're on a smaller ship, and they approach this bigger ship. And, of course, they're all like, wow, look at this ship. There's no markings on it. There's no, you know, meaning lettering. There's no registry number. There's no name on it. There's nothing on it. It's just, you know, a plain starship. But that's the funny thing about they're like, wow, look at this spaceship. And Robert April's like, it's a starship. And even George Kirk is getting trying to get used to saying starship oh yeah this is a starship this is something different and that's like to me the first indication that this doesn't really fit in with star trek enterprise yeah because that was one thing enterprise did is they referred to their ship as the starship enterprise but in the original series it feels like the intent was that this is you know a starship it's a new thing it's a huge ship i mean you remember the dedication plaque on the bridge of the original enterprise says uss enterprise starship class like that's kind of a new thing and there's only 12 of them in the fleet and stuff so it kind of follows what i think that original intent was but yeah enterprise kind of comes in and co-opts that term a little bit earlier in the timeline so it's it's not as impressive as it might have been in this book 
Now, in the animated series, that episode with April, didn't they say the Enterprise was the first warp starship? I'm pretty sure they did. Um, I think the f- the the first starship that could, or I don't know about the term starship. It's been a long time since I watched the animated series. Sorry, Aaron Harvey, if you're listening, I apologize for everything. But the the Bonaventure was the first Earth ship with warp. I think they said. But yeah, the term starship, I can't remember what was said at that time. I, I yeah, I, uh, I don't remember exactly. I just remember there was something where they say the Enterprise was either the first warp vessel or the first warp 10 vessel or first warp starship. It was something like that. Yeah, the, so Bonavi- maybe- the Bonaventure was definitely the one they said was the first warp ship from Earth okay. or the first the first ship fitted with warp drive, I think, is what Scotty yeah. says or something like that. Yeah. Uh, see, now I have to go watch that episode again. <laughs> so one thing I will say about this starship, though, this this unnamed gleaming white starship is the artwork that I have on mine. And I'll just hold it up to the camera for, for Bruce to see. Yes. It amazingly kind of fits in well with what we see in discovery and strange new worlds, like the pylons are kind of swept back. Like they weren't in the original series a little bit. Yeah. And I'm like, I could kind of squint and retcon the ship that I'm seeing in this book. As I read as looking more like the discovery slash strange new worlds version of the enterprise, which is the earlier version of the enterprise than we see in the five-year mission under Kirk. So that kind of worked well. I like that artwork. Yeah. And we'll just talk real quick about the covers. So originally when the novel came out, it has like a flip cover to it. So it's got an outer cover that you flip open. And then there's like another inner cover that has more artwork. And that's the one that Dan has in front of him. I have like the next version where it's just one cover. So I don't get all that more uh, whole page artwork like Dan's showing right there. So yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm hoping to find a way to use that insert artwork as the, uh, the show artwork. So you can kind of see what I'm talking about too. Hopefully that works. If not, I, I apologize. <laughs> Yeah, and if anybody wants to see those, I did see all the various covers on Memory Beta, so you can go there to see what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, that being said, uh, they get on the starship, and George Kirk is made first officer, and so now they're off on this mission, and I thought this was working out really well, even though it's different from what we've gotten in current canon and stuff. It was working well for me. I like the idea that Robert April put Kirk as first officer because he needed somebody who thought differently than himself. He's more of Mm -hmm. a pacifist, you know, April is. And Kirk's more of the, well, you know, we got to go out there and do this and do that and stuff. And he's not familiar with those whole ship. This is all new to him. So he, you know, April needs that counterbalance. So I thought that was pretty cool. And having his friend Drake Reed there too, who was almost kind of comic relief through some of this. A little bit. Yeah. I I definitely appreciated that. The idea of Robert April is this kind of wide eyed idealist. He's created this starship to be the vanguards of a new era of Starfleet exploration and peace and all of this stuff. And Kirk as that description as that back cover 
blurb I read earlier, he's the warrior, right? He's a military man. So having them offset each other, uh, and April recognizing that he needs someone like that aboard to kind of counterbalance his first instincts. I thought that was a really great leadership quality there. I really appreciated that. Well, okay. So let's, let's talk about these characters and how they were in our minds when we were reading this, how we pictured them. So when I got into this, having just come off of strange new worlds, you know, we're in the middle of the first season as we're recording this, I wanted to picture the Robert April we saw in the first episode of strange new worlds. And I also wanted to picture Chris Hemsworth as George Kirk, as we saw in star Trek 09. So Dan, that didn't really work for me (laughs) because of their descriptions in the book, Mm -hmm. because Robert April is described as brown hair, blue eyes, basically based on the Robert April version we got in TAS and not so much in Stranger Worlds, of course. And then George Kirk has this like kind of, you know, red hair, kind of bushy red hair and stuff, which I could kind of make that work on Chris Hemsworth, but I gave up on it. Yeah, it was oddly, um, I found it for whatever reason more difficult to picture Chris Hemsworth in the role of yeah. Kirk. And I, I can't exactly explain why. I think I had a hard time putting him in a uniform of that era for some reason. He kept popping into my head in his like tighter Kelvin uniform, which that's fine, whatever. But I, I don't know why. I was just. I I struggled with that one kind of like, oh yeah, and like changing the image in my head to be Chris Hemsworth and then it would work for a little while and then I would forget like, oh yeah, kind of try and conjure that up again. Robert April was another one I had to kind of actively try and just kind of to see as an experiment to try and picture him as we saw in Strange New Worlds, just kind of as an exercise to see how doable it is. Those descriptions I kind of had to gloss over, of course, and just say like, oh, well, the author didn't know how he really looked or (laughs) whatever, right? And just kind of, it's fiction set within the, right? Yeah. And uh, whenever they kept bringing up his Britishness, I kept thinking like, okay, well, that same uh, portrayal by the actor in Strange New Worlds, but with a British accent. Okay, let's see how that works. And (laughs) It was hit or miss. It was hit or miss. Yeah, I I was going down that path, a similar path early on, and I just was like, no, this isn't working. This isn't what the author intended. And we've seen Robert April, for example, in the comics, even not that long mm-hmm. ago, where, what was he doing? He was like evil. <laughs> he was like- Was it the Kelvin Timeline comics, I think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I was kind of picturing that too. So, yeah. But I'll ask you this. How did you picture the Enterprise and the bridge of the Enterprise? Oh, that one kind of went back and forth a little bit. I kept uh, picturing it kind of basic, like 60s style. And then every once in a while, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I can make it look all futuristic and fancy in my head. And I'd kind of try that out, which, again, I feel like that's just the beauty of the books, right? You can just tailor it to be however you want it to be in your head. So... Um, that one, I had a bit of an easier time just kind of changing how it looked in my head from time to time because it didn't matter as much to the story. It wasn't like a plot point so much. So, 
yeah, there was, it was, it was pretty shiny and new sometimes. And then other times it was pretty boxy and, and you know, the way it looked in the cage and stuff, except, uh, there was one moment I remember where someone left the bridge and the doors closed and somebody back on the bridge stared at the closed red doors for yeah. a period of time. And I was like, Oh, okay. So they were red to start with. Then they were painted kind of silvery blue for the cage and then red again for strange new worlds and <laughs> TOS later. So, hmm, okay. All right. <laughs> it's funny. I remember that moment when they said the red doors <laughs> because it worked for me because I was picturing it as if it's the bridge on strange new worlds. Mm-hmm. I had that the whole time. I mean, to me, the production value of reading this novel was a strange new world set on that, <laughs> on that enterprise throughout. It, it goes widescreen in your head. It's like, it Oh, it's not four by three anymore. It's all, it's all letterboxed. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the early days and even to this day, sometimes I've done this, but especially in the early days when I was reading Star Trek novels, you know, I thought that the bridge looked, you know, like a TV set for the most part. And so mm. I used to always picture it more futuristic. So I remember when Star Trek 09 came out, people were like, ah, oh, that bridge. And I'm like, I've redesigned that bridge a million times over. I'm used to this. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. The shots, some of them in the original series where like the camera is beside Spock station and there's a part of like the next station that's been pulled away so that they can get the camera in there and you can see the edge of Spock station and he's like holding it with his hand and you're like, your hand shouldn't be able to be there because it would be inside the console of the station. Yeah. There's times where you're like, oh, this is a set. Yes. So <laughs> I like upgrading it in my head a little bit too. Yes. So now speaking of the ship. Now, there's a debate that goes on throughout this book between April and Kirk. And I, but, well, hold on. Before, just so I, I, I didn't put this in the notes, and I wanted to mention this. I have nothing in the notes about this, do, uh, not the doctor, but the, the chief engineer, the older mm. guy who's very grumpy and very opinionated and just says what he thought. I love how he calls April August throughout yep. the entire book. <laughs> I enjoyed that. That was funny. Uh, that, yeah. I can't remember what he calls Kirk later. He calls him something. He does. And, and he's like, uh, my name is, is Lieutenant Kirk. And he's like, do you want me to get this done or not? Shut up. <laughs> and he's like, ah, <laughs> uh, okay, crap, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't remember what he called him either, but yeah, that like was Skippy or, or something like that. Just some, some little name like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was something like that. But throughout the book, April and Kirk are debating about the starship, you know, April's like, this is a, a peaceful ship. It's an exploratory vessel. You know, yes, it's got weapons on it, but that's just for, you know, just in case something happens or defense, but whatever. And Kirk's like, yeah, but we should also test the weapons too. We're testing everything else. The weapons are important too. I mean, this is also going to be perceived as a war machine from others that see this thing. And so, and so it was that debate going back and forth, which reminds me, which I actually just saw today. Someone actually brought this up like on Twitter or Facebook. And it's like, are they a military or not a military? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, it's that debate that Star Trek fans always have. And I like that being in this book because I'm not sure what the message is towards the end. Is it that, yes, this is a war machine because there is a lot of battles 
there are a lot of battle scenes going on in here. Yeah, this is definitely a debate that plays out through the book. And it's hard to say who wins exactly because, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of, of, of martial escapades in this book as far as battles and, and that sort of thing. And both it's, it's funny because both Kirk and April are convinced of the other by the end of the book. And they're kind of almost switch places briefly where, you know, April, uh, well, we'll get into the ending later, but yeah, they each kind of convince the other a little bit and maybe meet in the middle somewhere, I guess. But yeah, that debate is definitely present throughout this novel. And, and I did have to say, I got a little annoyed with April getting so pouty about even just testing the weapons at the beginning. Uh, I, I get it. I get where he's coming from, but it got a little bit like you're being a little too petulant about this. If that makes sense. I thought that too. Yeah. Just a little too much, especially for someone in Starfleet. But again, it's portraying this time and period where things are at peace. I guess there hasn't been a whole lot going on. The Romulan war was decades ago. So yeah, I guess, but yeah, I, I enjoyed the debate between these two and them coming around to see each other's view as, as it goes on. And then we also have the naming of the ship because it doesn't have a name. They were calling it the Empress throughout the book. It's mm-hmm. just like its nickname. But at one time, George Kirk did mention calling it Enterprise, and he starts talking about the past ships called enterprise and but he didn't mention the nx01 which i was disappointed about <laughs> yeah there was the um the brief mention of like an early earth starliner which i think is like supposed to be that ring ship enterprise the yes. xcv 300 or whatever um but yeah it would have been <laughs> i mean obviously they can't that came up way later in production history but i imagine that he just didn't quite get to the nx01 before like the conversation went elsewhere i'm like oh okay he just he was about to mention it but just didn't quite get there <laughs> but then they didn't officially name it enterprise but it's weird how our brains work sometimes and maybe this is in some other book but for some reason i thought i remembered when i read this book years ago that James T. Kirk, the little boy Jimmy Kirk, named the ship Enterprise. That hmm. George Kirk brought him on board, gave him a tour, and he came up with the name. I think that's in another book. Maybe it's like Best Destiny or something. Yeah, I don't. I, I remember Best Destiny and him coming on board the ship. I think it was already called the Enterprise at that point, but yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I can see how that would be. There's there's a lot of crossover between these two books. Best Destiny is one that I read years and years ago. And uh, now having finally read this, I'd love to revisit that one again and, and see how it jives. That'd be cool. Yeah, I think I have the two books converging and <laughs> mixing up in my head. But uh, I kept waiting for that moment. I was like, I don't see that happening in this book. I must have been (laughs) bringing something else in. But I also like how this is, as we know, the Enterprise is a Constitution-class starship. And it's mentioned here that the the first blueprints, per se, were of the Constitution. And it was 1700, but it never got built or whatever. So this is like the next version of it. So it's 1701. And we just got to come up with a name for it. And even April was saying maybe calling it Constitution. But Kirk didn't think that was quite right for this ship. 
Yeah, I, I like that. That's interesting that there wasn't apparently an actual ship, the USS Constitution, 1700, and this one is 1701. And, and so once we read that, we're like, okay, this is definitely the ship that becomes the Enterprise and stuff. I was thinking of the NASA Space Shuttle as well. It's just kind of interesting parallels here where that first shuttle that was meant to be used for testing and stuff was supposed to be the constitution, but it was the um, campaign by, by Star Trek fans and stuff that got them to decide to name it enterprise. So it's like the same thing happened with the starship. It was going to be constitution and now it's enterprise. I think that's kind of funny. I don't know. That was weird. And I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was glad they mentioned the, uh, space shuttle enterprise in here it's one of the past ships but then let's talk about um what happens later here with the romulans so i I have to admit i wasn't too keen on the whole romulan like the romulans kind of fighting with each other i i i appreciate it later because where then once i saw where it was going then then i got with this romulan commander to kale so April, so the Starship Enterprise, which isn't called Enterprise, <laughs> all of a sudden has this like technical failure, and then it kind of throws everybody around, and April gets injured, so Kirk has to take control, and then here's this other ship. Looks like a Romulan ship of some type. I think they're suspicious it might be, but there's communication between the two ships, and Takeo and Kirk beam down this planetoid to meet with each other and work things out, because Takeo invited Kirk to his ship, but they want neutral ground, you know, that's where Kirk wanted to go. And so they go down there and then the Romulan ship goes and fires on their vessels down there and just destroys them because really it's a mutiny that's going on with the Romulan side because Takeo seems to be more of a pacifist for Romulans in their, <laughs> for their take of trying to avoid war. He seems to have an interest in Earth. He has studied the plants of Earth. He's willing to put out a hand and say, hey, maybe we can be friends. And hey, I don't like the direction my people are going in. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> There's a lot there. So, yes. um, I was, I, I actually really enjoyed and was interested in a lot of that Romulan infighting at the beginning. And yeah, we've got Takale, who's like the the squadron commander of of all of these ships in the swarm kind of thing. And we've got Idris, who's the commander of the, the Romulan ship, this particular ship of the swarm. And they're kind of together against this Ryak guy. Who's the, the eye of the Praetor, right? He's like the, the political officer aboard the ship kind of thing. I kind of enjoyed all of this plotting and maneuvering and, uh, I got to say, when Idris was killed, that was a big shock. I was like, ah, this story is just, ah, this is where this is going. That's crazy. Um, and this is right after Takeo leaves the ship to meet with George Kirk on this planet. The whole thing with the two of them on the planet, that's something we've seen in Star Trek before a lot as well that I, I really enjoyed. I like these two. I guess it's funny. We've seen it in Star Trek before. Um, but all of that was made after this book came out. So this book maybe is more up on doing this than, than the show is because I was thinking of 
the TNG episode, The Enemy, where LaForge and the Romulan are trapped on this planet and have to survive together. And uh, later on, kind of a repeat of the same story, Enterprise, they had Tucker and uh, his, I think his name was Zokan. He was a kind of reptilian alien and they were stuck together on a planet having to survive as well. And I don't know, I really like that. That's a bit of a trope in science fiction, getting two enemies together in an isolated situation and they both kind of come to one, understand one another. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this part of the story. I love when Kirk first sees him and is like, a Vulcan, I've got to rescue him yes. and gets him away. Cause the other Romulans are wearing helmets. So he sees the pointed ears and like grabs him and, ba- and you puts him behind him and is protecting him and getting him away. And to like this, why did they send a lunatic? This guy's insane. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that part. That was really good scene. I did like that. I love how Kirk thinks, yeah, he's a Romulan. I mean, thinks he's a Vulcan and like, we got to get you away from it. <laughs> Decal's like, okay, like, I don't know why you're doing all this, but whatever, you know? And it wasn't until later that he like smiles or something where Kirk's like, wait a second, is he really Vulcan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just saying like early on with the whole Romulan stuff, I, I don't know. It just wasn't grabbing me. But when we got to this point, that's when I, it really started clicking for me. That's when I was like, okay, now I'm getting into this whole thing. You know, that's when it really started to work for me. And I was picturing the old style look of Romulans in mm-hmm. this. I had a hard time getting Mark Leonard out of my head. I kept wanting to make him to call look like Mark Leonard. So I just. I, I kind of a little. <laughs> yeah. I kept wondering. It's one of those things that like, is this going to be like, you realize by the end of the book, this is someone we've seen before or something like that. So I had that in the back of my mind and I'm like, okay, I don't, after a certain point, I'm like, I don't think that's where this is going. But I kept wondering, like, is this going to be Mark Leonard's character or not? For whatever reason, I don't know why, I kept picturing him as really young, even though he was a really high-ranking Romulan. I don't know why I kept picturing this kind of younger Romulan. Yeah, I don't know. I was, yeah, I wasn't picturing him young, but I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know exactly why. Something early on, something in one of the scenes in his quarters or something, I pictured him, I don't know, this like tall, thin, young Romulan. I think I was, it was almost... I, I don't, again, I don't know why my brain does these things, but it was almost like he was an anime character or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't even really watch anime. I don't get it. <laughs> That's funny. My Isn't brain's it weird. weird. <laughs> no, but it does that. Like you just kind of, you don't get like a clear visualization of something when you're reading a book. Sometimes, sometimes you just like a basic idea and it just pulls from something that you've seen in the past. I've had that happen. Where and you can't seem to get like gun- get unstuck off of it. Yeah. Like it's like my brain just keeps going back there. And then you try to force yourself to accept something else, but then yeah, your brain keeps going back there, and, and it, yeah, it can be animated. You know, there's times I've read books where it's like, yeah, some of the characters look like they might be animated <laughs> because they remind <laughs> me of something in the animated series or something. Well, it's like if Mariner or Boimler ever show up in a Star Trek novel, I'm really curious as to how I'm going to picture them. Like somebody recently did some photoshops where they took like scenes from Star Trek films and episodes and just put the Lower Decks characters in there as the animated versions. 
and they said like they should show up in other shows and just be animated and nobody even comments on it i kind of love that (laughs) (laughs) well you know the alan dean foster log books star trek log books which were novelizations of the animated series i've Mm -hmm. read some of those and every time i've read them i try to picture as live action my brain always goes back to the animation Mm -hmm. it's so hard to like stay on where you want to go sometimes but but i also like the portrayal of the romans in here is working off of the and i don't know if this is how you pronounce it but the rahansu those Mm. novels by diane duane and stuff that you know they're playing with what was conceived as the romulans before tng started i don't think this contradicts with anything really that we've seen in romulans since then but it's definitely got that old style feel to it. Yeah, I liked that. I, I've, I'm a big fan of those novels, uh, the the Romulan, the Hansu novels, like you said. Uh, so yeah, I was really happy to see them referring to themselves as such in this novel. I, I really liked that. So uh, yeah, and then as I mentioned earlier, there's this technical mishap, and Kirk is already suspicious. Could it be sabotage? That's happening here. <laughs> Someone has sabotaged the ship. Sabotage. That's it. Sabotage the ship. But he's suspicious and, and April's like, nah, nothing's going. No, no, it's just a technical problem. And Kirk's like, yeah, well, I don't know. But we do find out as we go along, one of the engineers did try to sabotage the ship or actually did sabotage the ship. And then, uh, there was, they thought that was done. But then they find out, you know, something else happens again. And then they find out from Takal that Romulans work in pairs. Wait, did I just say Romulans? But wait, I thought we said this was an engineering crew member that did this. Well, come to find out that these people who were sabotaging the ship are Romulans, but human Romulans. They're actually humans. And I kind of like this backstory that he tells that before the Romulan War, or what he calls it the Federation War, duh, makes sense from his standpoint, the Federation War, that humans came into their space and just became part of their society and never left. And some of them had been surgically altered to look Romulan. Yeah, that was interesting. I I like that. uh, You know, history is never as black and white as we think it is. And people are like, Oh, but nobody's seen a Romulan before, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, you can't account for all of the thousands and millions of people out there. Like there's stuff that happens all the time that we have no idea about. And I like that idea that there was these pioneers that set out maybe colonists or something that wandered into that area of space and encountered the Romulans and just became a part of their society I think that's cool. I think that was a a neat way to introduce these saboteurs as plot elements in this novel. Worked for me. I I thought that worked. So did you th- who do we, who did you think was actually sabotaging the the ship? I this was one that for whatever reason I honestly didn't know. I was like, okay, well it's it's got to be one or two of the of the people that we see in a couple scenes, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I I was honestly like not sure who they would be turn out to be. I didn't I, think I didn't think it would be anybody on the bridge. I thought they were all kind of okay, but yeah, I I wasn't sure either. But three quarters of the way through, I thought T- 
Tikal's up to something. Like hmm. I believed him throughout, but at one point I thought, well, wait a second. He has mentioned that this would would be a, a prize, the ship. And I'm not saying he would use it to go against the Federation, but I thought maybe he would look at it as a ship that he would like to take and remove from the Federation and even keep out of the hands of his own government. And mm-hmm. so maybe he's somehow behind this as a way not to fight the Federation, but to take basically a weapon away from them and preventing it from getting to his own people. You know, that was kind of starting to run through my mind. Like maybe there's more to this guy than I'm giving him credit for. But in some ways I'm glad they didn't go that route because I love that he was true throughout of what his, of trying to help them, you know, and, and, and trying to prevent what he feels that could eventually end in war. The direction his, his people are going to go into is going to be war. They're going to invade Federation space, but not all Romulans think alike. Yeah, definitely. I, I really appreciated his character throughout this as well. And the fact that what he's doing could be seen as treason and by most definitions probably is treason, but the, the little history lesson we get from him on what his society has become and, and, the good times that they recently had that have, they've backslid back into this dictatorship and stuff. I thought that was really interesting. I appreciated that bit of backstory and the motivation for him doing what he's doing and his beliefs that would shock most, you know, soldier level Romulans. Yeah. And then I like how it concluded where there was these two devices or bombs or whatever that the Romulans got on the Enterprise, and they were able to defuse one of them, but not the other. But they got it onto the Romulan ship, and of course the Romulans, even though that would cripple their ships, I mean, there's a lot more battles and other ships being blown up. I'm kind of fast-forwarding here to the end. But, you know, Romulans, they're going to destroy themselves. They're not going to be captured. They're not going to be, they're just, they blow up their own ship. And I kept thinking this whole time, okay, Takao's still on the Enterprise. Everybody's seen him. Everybody knows he's a Romulan, but in Balance of Terror, no one has seen Romulans. How are they going to explain this away? And I love the fact- It's secret. It's classified. Exactly. (laughs) I'm like, I've seen that before in other Star Trek stuff. (laughs) But also, it's implied then he's going to get surgically altered to not Mm. look Romulan anymore. So he'll fit into Earth society- not looking like a Romulan. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I'd be curious. I mean, I I know this book is so far away from canon that nothing, you know, whatever, but I, I'd love to see a follow-up somehow of of what this guy's up to and and how he's getting along living in Earth society or something. And, you know, when the secret of the Romulans is revealed and they're on the brink of war, like is he advising the Federation on stuff or something like that. I think that'd be really interesting. That would be interesting. I was just quickly looking up on memory beta to see if he was ever used in any novel following this one, but he wasn't, he was only in this one. So Mm -hmm. yeah, we'll probably never get that, but Dan, you could write your own fan fiction if you want. There you go. Yeah, I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing we haven't touched on and it's how the book starts we have James T. Kirk at the very beginning of this book. And it's kind of the framing story throughout this book that 
Kirk, and that's James Kirk, because I don't want you to confuse all the Kirks we're talking about here, but he returns to his family's farm in Iowa, and he's contemplating about his future after the death of Edith Keeler. And he's found these letters that his father had written to him and his brother over the years, and it's kind of messing with his mind. He's thinking about his future. Does he belong in Starfleet? Should he start stay on earth and start a family? And of course, then you got McCoy comes to visit and he's like, what are you thinking? Jim, come on, come on. You belong on a starship, that whole thing. And then Spock joins them too. What'd you think of the framing story? I really enjoyed that actually. And and yeah, he's reading these letters and, and all of this and dealing with the fallout of what happened in that episode. This is the power of novels and these stories that exist outside of the television show and the weakness, or at least story-wise, weakness of the television shows of the time and how they told stories is this was a traumatic incident for Kirk. This was a huge deal that he had to hold his friend back to allow this woman who he had fallen in love with to die to save millions of lives. And of course the television show by the next week, they've completely forgotten about it and moved on because that's not how shows were made back then. That's not how they worked. So to get to examine that in this book and to get a little bit, we get, this is kind of like Kirk's episode of family from TNG where Picard deals with what happened with him at the Borg we actually got an episode dealing with the aftermath. We don't get that in TOS, so we get that here in the novel. I really appreciated that. And a lot of what he was feeling and thinking felt very natural to me. And then you add in bones to that as well. And the fact that he even kind of contemplates that it was my fault what all happened. Like, I you know, because I saved Edith Keeler and it's like, well, no, that's, you know, that's not a, you did what you felt was right. And he's like, no, no, even before that, I made the mistake of injecting myself accidentally. And, and that started the whole thing. So, you know, he's feeling guilt about it as well. And Kirk wants to leave Starfleet and you leave it all behind. And he feels like that's the message in his father's letters until he gets to the final letter. And he realizes that's not the message here at all. And I really liked that story. I thought that was terrific. Yeah, it was almost like his father went through that same journey when he was writing those letters of, you know, maybe you guys don't belong in space. And then it ends with like, well, no, you do. Like, space is a good place to go to. And yeah, I mean, I thought actually you rehashing it makes me appreciate it even more. The The only thing I didn't like is that he was contemplating leaving Starfleet and eventually told that Admiral he was leaving, but the Admiral didn't take him seriously. <laughs> and then he's like, Oh no, I'm back. He goes, yeah, don't worry. I never put in the paperwork anyway, but <laughs> I, I feel like I've read so many things where Kirk's thinking about leaving Starfleet and leaving the bridge and McCoy's trying to talk him back. And it's like, Oh, here we go again. But you know, if putting that aside, this just works so well when you consider the whole thing that happened with Edith Keeler and like you said, and McCoy and, and Kirk dealing with that. And mm -hmm. that was a really great scene. That was probably like halfway through the book. You know, I remember the books divided, I think, to four parts. And I think that might have been the scene at the start of part three or something like that. But yeah. uh, 
which by the way, part three, I think is called strange new worlds. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Which I, that was, that was amusing to me for sure. Yeah. I actually got to that part and I just held it up to my wife. I said, look what this next part is called. And she just laughed. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to say the one part of this that didn't ring true for me a little bit was when Kirk was talking about, you know, my being on this ship and having this crew together is holding all of them back. Like Spock should be captaining his own ship and bones should be off doing research and Uhura should be doing this and Scotty should be. And I'm like, this is the first season of the original series. Like that seems like a weird time to be having those thoughts. Like if this was like in the movie era or something that makes sense to me that he feels like he's holding back all these other people, but like this is still very early in the whole Star Trek story. So, you know, him thinking that Sulu should be off being a captain and blah, blah, blah. Maybe like around Star Trek two or Star Trek three time period somewhere in there, maybe, but it seemed very odd for him to be having those thoughts at this time. I'm glad you brought that up because I remember thinking it wasn't specific. It didn't say a date of when he's reading these letters and he's on the farm. And so I was like, okay, is this taking place in the movie era? Cause I remember for that reason, I was wondering that, but I like, but why the Edith Keeler thing seems to be more recent, unless this is something that he's dealing with 10 or 15 years later. It, it just, yeah, I wasn't too sure. I wasn't real clear on that. I'm, I'm pretty sure it does take place shortly after Edith Keeler that incident and during the five-year mission, but it does seem odd to feel that he's feeling like he's keeping everybody back. But this book did come out when those movies had been released. Uh, Star Trek four would have been the more recent one. So I don't know, maybe the author kind of confused the two. I don't know. Yeah, maybe I think it's in the forward where the author or, or I can't remember exactly, but it's stated that it takes place right after city on the edge of forever. I usually read the forward. I don't think I did this time. I could be wrong. I'm just, I'm remembering reading that, but (laughs) I'm not sure. Yep. Here it is. It's on uh, page nine, Roman numeral nine in the forward. Final frontier is a Star Trek historical taking place 25 years before James Kirk's time aboard the enterprise. The framework involving James Kirk takes place immediately after the television episode, the city on the edge of forever. And the reader may wish to refer to it. So recommended viewing from them as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So yeah, I guess it does take place then. So it is odd that he's feels like he's holding everybody back. Well, any other thoughts or final thoughts about this book? Well, final thoughts. Uh, so interestingly, I love that it's called Final Frontier and it came out in 1988 and it's kind of funny that like, oh, nothing else has used the name Final Frontier for a Star Trek work. And then the very next year, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier comes out. So it's just kind of funny how close together in history those two are. But um, about the actual book itself, I did mention that I have a couple issues. And one of them, unfortunately, for my money is... Diane Carey's politics and beliefs, which kind of come into the book a little bit here. And I'm going to say some things that maybe won't be apparent to somebody reading this from a particular perspective, which would be usually an American audience from the United States. 
as an outsider from the United States, there's a lot of what I would call like chest thumping and kind of worship of the constitution of the United States and the role of the United States as the world's policeman and, and all of that kind of stuff. There's a discussion between April and George Kirk towards the end about, you know, should the Federation be the galaxy's policeman? Can they afford not to be the galaxy's policeman? We should be out there encouraging freedom and blah, blah, blah. And, to me, that's just a little bit of a dangerous avenue to go down and to believe yourself to be the arbiter of what's right and wrong in the world or the universe. And, I, you know, I don't want to get in trouble with people listening. And, and I know most of our listeners and most of the people involved in making and watching and reading Star Trek are from the United States. But just as an outsider to that, kind of seeing that is always just a little bit like, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but the other thing about Diane Carey and uh, her politics a little bit is uh, she's a, as far as I know, and as far as from what I've heard and read, uh, she's a staunch libertarian as well, which comes into the story a little bit, but isn't, isn't overwhelming in here, but I do see that she has a quote from Ayn Rand at the end of the story too. And I'm like, that's interesting. Not generally a thinker that people would associate with Star Trek's ideals, but at the same time, I think there's room in Star Trek for all sorts of different perspectives and stuff. So I definitely appreciate where she's coming from, even though I don't agree with those particular politics and stuff. So uh, it, it just came into it a little bit with George Kirk's character and the belief that, you know, we need a bigger stick than the enemy sometimes and all that kind of stuff. So, but all of that aside, like the story itself is rocking. I love it. I love the, the adventure. I love the action. I love the debate that happens between the two perspectives and stuff. Not sure about the answer to that or where they fall eventually, but I, I do appreciate the discussion. And like I said, the story itself, the characters are terrific to just becomes one of my favorite literary characters in this book. So I'm going to say four out of five big, huge, hairy creatures that are loose on the enterprise, uh, but get frozen at some point. So <laughs> it's all okay. <laughs> I sometimes like how we do these ratings and we bring up something that we didn't even mention from yeah. the book, but yeah, there's like this bear like creature running around on the enterprise. That was pretty good. <laughs> that got A little up. terrifying too. Yeah. Yeah. That was funny. Uh, I, I'm glad you brought up the whole U.S. Constitution thing, because I thought about that when I was reading the book, when she refers to it, and that's why the Constitution class, you know, because of the Constitution of the United States, and it was almost like portraying like Starfleet and, and the Federation were founded based on that U.S. Constitution. There's implications of that, and I wondered what you thought of that. And I mean... I, I do live in the United States and I mean, it bothered me because not that I have anything against the U S constitution, but I do look at star Trek as being a global fictional universe that takes place for the world, the world created federation. And so I don't want to think that one country's 
documentation is the one that they base things off of. I like to see it as more of a collective effort from different people and different cultures and, and governments around the world. So it didn't bother me that much, but to your point, yeah, I, I just think that uh, probably would have been best not to use that. I also noticed though, that at the end of the book, there's a note from the author that says this was written uh, she got this done on September 17th, 1987, which was the 200th birthday of the Constitution of the United States. So there you go. And ends it by saying, all patriots, please rise. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work when you're looking at a worldwide audience, but, you know, it is what it is. But it's it's not, to me, a really bad thing, but I, I just, I wouldn't have gone there if I were mm. her. But anyway... Um, but yeah, I did enjoy the book. The feel of the book, even though I was picturing the sets and the bridge of Strange New Worlds, it feels like it could be a Strange New World sequel. It had that feel to it, to me. Hmm. I'm, I shouldn't say sequel, prequel. Right. But um, but then, of course, Strange New Worlds has a TOS kind of vibe to it, too. So it has that vibe of of this era and that kind of storytelling. And I like the characters, their interplay with each other. And I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think I enjoyed it a little more than I thought I would. I read it way back in the day, but because I'm more into Star Trek lore now, I think I've enjoyed it even more. So I'll give this one nine out of 10 wings that are on a Romulan warbird that one of the wings got busted off. Mm, nice. And they're all different colors to denote the, the different ships and stuff too. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's very colorful. Excellent. Very cool. Well, I'm I'm really glad you chose this novel. Um, and I'm really glad I got the chance to read it because it's it's one that's been sitting on my shelf for a long time tempting me. So thank you for finally pushing me to read it. I did enjoy it. I'm surprised you hadn't read it because I just assumed you would have probably read this one. This is a well-known classic, but we didn't even, you know, we failed to mention that this is our 200th episode <laughs> right <laughs> it's not only the 200th anniversary of the u.s constitution when it was written it's the 200th episode of positively track yeah exactly <laughs> and that's why we were like oh what should we do it's the 200th episode what book should we do there's no new books coming out what's a good classic that's popular it's known and we've covered some others that are well known and uh, it just popped in my head. I was like, oh, what about Final Frontier? So that's how we came up with that one. Well, I, I'm glad you picked it. Like I said, glad I finally got to read it. Well, if those who remember Star Trek Mission Chicago, I did a panel there about the books. And Jesse Gender, that you may know from YouTube, who's been on the show once before, joined me as part of that panel. And I invited her to join us on one of her book clubs because she's a big book reader and she actually does reviews on her YouTube channel. So check those out. So anyway, she's going to be, as of now, unless things change, on our next book club and we're doing Tales of the Dominion War. That's what she chose to read. I've read that way back in the day. Have you read those stories in there? I have not. Another oh. one. I've never read. Oh. I'm oh, really excited. Well, this is a favorite of hers, so I'm excited to get back into that book while I've been doing my DS9 rewatch, but I still haven't reached the Dominion War yet in the rewatch, but but I'm going to enjoy that. So check that out. So Dan, when people are looking for you online, when they want to talk about Final Frontier or other things, where can they find you? 
You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm also on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. And of course, in the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook, still, I think, just the best place to have Star Trek discussions. Everyone's really nice. And uh, it's, it's a great community there. Oh, yeah. I'm in there, too. And I'm also on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. I'm also on Instagram at just Admiral Rex. And you can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Positively Trek. You can also send us an email, PositivelyTrek at gmail.com. And look for our Goodreads group where we talk about the novels and the comics in there. And we post what upcoming books we're reading for the book club shows. So check that out. And we want to thank our patrons on Patreon for all your support and to you, the listeners, for just listening to us babble on about Star Trek stuff. I wish I could hear what you guys are saying, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we look forward to uh, to having everybody listen to our next 200 episodes, too. So, Oh, my know. gosh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do a roundtable sometimes. So maybe oh, we'll do yeah. that. That would be cool. Yes. So, episode thanks. 400. That's our. <laughs> That's <just> it. <laughs> yeah, sign up now for the roundtable, episode 400. <laughs> well, it was good talking to you, Dan. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And go out in the world and stay positive. Door Robert April, first captain of the USS Enterprise, and for the past 20 years, Federation ambassador at large. No matter where I've traveled in the galaxy, Jim, this bridge is more like home than anywhere else. Yes, Commodore, I know the feeling. Jim, I didn't realize how many of the tools I use in sickbay were designed by Sarah. As the first medical officer aboard a ship equipped with warp drive, I'm afraid I had to come up with new ideas all the time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.